You're listening to a Toronto Centre podcast. Welcome. The goal of TC Podcasts is to spread the knowledge and accumulated experience of global leaders, experts, and world-renowned specialists in financial supervision and regulation. In each episode, we'll delve into some of today's most pressing issues as it relates to financial supervision and regulation. The financial crisis, climate change, financial inclusion, fintech, and much more. Enjoy this episode. Hello, everyone. Uh, welcome to uh, Toronto Center's webinar on inclusive growth, transformative approaches to women's economic empowerment. Uh, we have audiences uh, from all the way from Bahamas, Bangladesh, all the way to Zambia and Zimbabwe. So I think we covered just about every letter of the alphabet. Welcome to all. We're holding this conversation in conjunction with the Unite to End uh, Violence Against Women initiative led by uh, UN Secretary General and UN Women and the 16 Days of Activism Against Gender-Based Violence. Today is also sadly the 33rd anniversary of the Montreal Massacre. We remember and honor the 14 women who were killed in this abhorrent act of gender-based violence. We're also currently witnessing daily the brutal repression faced by Iranian women. Since establishment in 1998, Toronto Centre has trained more than 20,000 regulators from 190 countries and territories to build more stable, inclusive financial systems. Access to finance, the ability to save, borrow, and control their own money and insure themselves and their assets is crucial to women's empowerment and to building strong and inclusive financial systems. Findex 2021 reported that the gender gap in financial inclusion has been reduced to 6% after hovering at roughly 9% for several years. However, unfortunately, roughly 1.4 billion people still remain unbanked globally, a majority of them are women. Findex also reports that mobile money has become an important enabler of financial inclusion as a driver of account ownership and usage for payments, savings, and credit. Technological innovations such as digital payments have a great potential for expanding financial services to excluded women. However, the promise that digital payments holds for advancing gender equality will not happen on its own. Leveraging mobile phone access, identification, and digital and financial capability could increase financial account ownership and usage. Many stakeholders, including financial supervisors, have a key role to play. That's why since 2015, Toronto Center has organized scores of international events, capacity building courses on the intersection of gender equality and finance. We produced important publications such as our Practical Gender-Aware Supervision Toolkit, which with support from the USAID. Two years ago, we also started offering a leadership program for women supervisors and regulators from Sub-Saharan Africa to help current and aspiring women leaders to become more effective in their roles. And we continue to collaborate with CGAP and the Digital Frontiers Institute in offering supervision capacity for digital finance. Canada's recent announcement of the Indo-Pacific strategy, which presents a comprehensive roadmap to deepen Canada's engagement in the region is encouraging. Toronto Centre has many partners in this important region, ranging from India to the ASEAN region and beyond. The pandemic, global uncertainties and persistent barriers have disrupted the world economy and stalled progress on the sustainable development goals, including SDG 5, which relates to the empowerment of women. However, it is not all doom and gloom, as there are success stories. Today, our distinguished panelists will discuss not only challenges, but also transformative approaches as they share their experiences and lessons learned. We have a special treat for you today. It is my privilege to welcome our special guest, the Honorable Smitri Zubin, 
Irani, Minister of Women and Child Development and Minority Affairs of India, our good friend Anita Bachia, Assistant Secretary General of the United Nations and Deputy Executive Director of UN Women, and our good friend, partner, and former alumni, uh, Erna Mutinga, Deputy CEO of Prudential Supervision of the Namibia Financial Institution Supervisory Agency, or NAMFISA. You have received their bios. A big welcome to our speakers. I also want to thank Toronto Center staff who worked so hard on this uh, uh, webinar, uh, notably Demet, uh, Demet Chanakcha and Casey Edmonds. Toronto Center's mission is generously supported by Global Affairs Canada, the Swedish CETA, and the IMF. So without further ado, let's begin. Minister Irani, uh, my first question is to you. You're a transformative leader by all accounts in empowering women on the socioeconomic and political front. Would you please elaborate on your approaches to uplifting the socioeconomic and equality challenges of women in India? And I must note before you start that uh, next year, India is hosting the G20. So you are sitting on a very important platform now, especially on this issue. Please go ahead, Minister. I think that to recognize the leadership of the Honorable Prime Minister, when I say that to recognize it is to also recognize that the issue of women is not limited to one department or one ministry in the government of India. We are today extremely grateful to see a tectonic shift in administrative approach in the government where the prime minister led from the front and said that for decades in India, we've spoken of emancipation of women. And now as an economy, we need to recognize that till such time women lead that development, women take greater strides in economic issues. We cannot see an overall economic growth that is the aspiration of a billion plus people. Now, having said that, the prime minister put the money where the mouth was. And in 2014, when he began his administrative journey as the prime minister of India, one of the first uh, that he proposed was to ensure that we put money behind infrastructure for women's health. And one of the priority areas was sanitation. We had 110 million families that did not have access to individual toilets. And also there was a focus on ensuring that infrastructure for education for young women uh, was also given priority in the government. Apart from building individual toilets for 110 million women in the country, which for many may not seem as an important economic agenda, but let's remember that in the year 2011-12, the World Bank, when it reflected on the economic impact of sanitation and the lack of sanitation in India, spoke about a 6% loss to the GDP with regards to a sanitation challenge. In fact, we saw an overarching impact even on our tourism sector with an annual loss of $270 million only because of the lack of sanitation facilities. Now, having said that, the Prime Minister prioritized sanitation needs for women. He prioritized the fiscal needs of women by ensuring that they have access to financial services. And in the year 2014, he began a program called the Jandhan Yojana, wherein banks were implored to reach out to every citizen who was still unbanked. And out of the 440 million Indians who for the first time managed to open a bank account under that program, we saw that the benefit was accrued to 220 million women. Now, how does leadership and foresight work when the challenges like a pandemic present themselves before a country as big as us? Uh, during the pandemic, the prime minister insisted that there is a cash transfer to these very 220 million bank accounts of women so that we could sustain their purchasing power. Now we're back in 2014-15 again. One of our biggest challenges was that women who wanted to economically empower themselves in the fiscal sector from a perspective of MSMEs or SMEs for that matter, did not have access to credit from banks and especially credit where they did not have of a, a collateral. And that is why one of the greatest successes uh, of financial services under the Prime Minister's leadership is a program uh, called Mudra. Now, I must here uh, give uh, conciliation to the men and say that this uh, program was not designed only for women. It was designed for citizens at large who wanted to 
uh, have access to credit and give impetus to their small businesses. And lo and behold, we had 70% of the beneficiaries who turned out to be women. And I'm happy to share that the NPA for such programs is less than 3%, which means today women in our country have financially announced to the world that they make for better investment projects as compared to many a large corporations. Now, uh, from the health perspective, Baba, I must here flag, and Anita has been a witness to it, a program called Ayushman Bharat. It is one of the most ambitious health plans in the world, which covers again 100 plus million families, which means close to 500 million citizens in my country. Uh, this gives access to 28,000 hospitals for 1,300 illnesses, including surgeries and treatments for cancer, heart disease, uh, for poor families and particularly women. And we have seen one of the greatest takeaways in just one year of this plan being rolled out was that we had close to 80 million women who got themselves checked for breast cancer and cancer of the cervix from these uh, very institutions with the medical support of the government of India. Now, when you look at the cultural context of health and especially issues like cancer of the cervix and cancer of the breast, you will not look at it only from a medical or from an economic perspective. Culturally, it was presumed that Indian women and particularly women in rural India or poor families will be shy from reaching out and voicing their needs to get medical support from issues for issues like breast cancer or cancer of the cervix. Now that uh, revolution that we saw in the health plan in our country, again, uh, that amounts to a great service done to the female agenda from a health perspective. Going forward, the Prime Minister said, why me do only with uh, financial services or credit services, which have a smaller um, uh, pocket of money to give out? Why not look at the startup ventures of women and, and men and support that. But particularly the prime minister ensured that in every district of our country, we ensure every bank reaches out, especially to uh, women who are now in a position to bring about mid-sized companies or startups. Again, the program called Stand Up India, lo and behold, 80% of the beneficiaries turned out to be women which means that for long, uh, there has been a conversation in India that what women's enterprise lacked was access to credit. And that big gap has been fulfilled with these fiscal services. As you know, and I'm sure you've heard that especially in the pandemic, India uh, did the largest ever uh, rollout of a food security program where close to 800 million citizens have received free food and food grain support from the government for a 28-month uh, uninterrupted service to be given at the doorstep of 800 million citizens in itself is an administrative wonder. And as you say that we are now at the precipice of a presidency where we can redefine the women's agenda, well, the prime minister during the handover has very well articulated that India will lead with the example of women-led development. But how, when you bring women at the fulcrum of administration, you not only uplift an economy, you uplift a family system, you uplift a culture and a society. So those are the lessons we are hoping to share with our partners across the world, uh, not only from a financial uh, perspective, not only from a health perspective. India now has a new education policy, which for the first time in the history of our country has a gender inclusion fund where particularly funds will be given by the government of India to every state and every district so that women and their educational needs additionally can be met outside the infrastructure grants that are already given. Minister, thank you. And as I reflect on your comments, I can certainly uh, see and feel the pride by which you talk about these. I, I do know that uh, you were a very strong advocate of uh, underprivileged women during the pandemic and the, in the women who were in the front lines. Another thing that really struck me was the fact that you were throwing incredible numbers, like 80 million women being screened for cancer. And I mean, we're talking about more than double the population of Canada. So the so scale of what has been talked about and discussed by you is staggering and impressive. Just one final, fi um, you know, kind of an interesting aside, you said 
it proved that women were better investments. So we have a saying here that, you know, the poster child of financial crisis in the West was the Lehman Brothers. What if it was the Lehman Sisters? Maybe we would be in a very different uh, situation. So let's move on to Erna. Erna, um, addressing the gender gap in finance is a key preoccupation for policymakers and increasingly regulators and supervisors are getting into the discussion as well. Namibia's financial sector is dominated by non-bank financial institutions and is regulated and supervised by NAMFISA. Financial inclusion and its supervision are part of uh, uh, Namibia's financial sector strategy. In your opinion, what is the expected outcome and strategies to achieve them? And what role do you see for NAMFISA here? Thank you. Thank you so much, Fabak. Um, and um, good afternoon to, to everybody. Yes, indeed, the Namibia financial sector strategy um, has recently ended. We are currently in the process of reviewing the just ended strategy to see what are the key tenets that we want to take forward in terms of the next strategy. But one of the themes, the key themes uh, in terms of financial sector strategy, as you've rightly said, is financial inclusion, amongst others, financial safety net. Um, it's localization of the Namibian banking sector and skills development. But of importance, of course, is financial inclusion that comes with two sub-themes. Um, sub the first one being the consumer financial literacy and protection. Um, and that, I believe, is quite apt for our conversation today. And the second one um, as a subset or, or a second outcome is access to financial services and products. And um, to this effect, my organization, NAMFISA, has sort of included financial inclusion as one of the key strategic objectives over uh, a five-year strategy period. And in that, we have sort of deciphered and decrystallized what it is that we can do as regulators and supervisors to make sure that we include more um, of the Namibian population in terms of um, access to financial services and also um, ensuring that, that they are adequately protected. And under that strategic objective, we have sort of come up with a footprint strategy. And this footprint strategy has sort of brought us um, to a place where we sort of went with uh, NAMFISA on wheels. And, and this truck is, is a truck that sort of vis visits um, our 14 regions. And, and I must at this point say, Babak, that Namibia is a vast country, more than 824 square kilometers. But only having 2.5 million people that are scarcely and sparsely populated across this vast country of ours. So getting to um, our population is, is, quite an, is quite an issue. So um, that, is, that is one of the things that, that we have done in terms of, of access and also in terms of consumer protection and in terms of financial inclusion. Now, as I've said, the strategy is under review. Um, NAMFISA as the regulator is, is doing its bit in, in, in accessing and in and making sure that we reach the most far out um, places in, in Namibia. Um, we, we are still in the process of, of sort of gathering sex disaggregated data because I believe that you can't measure and you can't manage if you can't measure. And from a measurement perspective, it's important for us to make sure that we get the right data. And we've started with that process, particularly in our pension fund space and also in our, um, <clears throat> in our insurance space to make sure that we have adequate data that will help us to address supervisory challenges of gender gaps and, and also um, make use of this data to serve our population better. And in doing so, we are heavily relying also on the gender away toolkit that um, the Toronto Center has recently um, introduced because we believe that we can do better in terms of prudential supervision, but also in market conduct supervision if we deploy um, this particular toolkit. So I, I believe those are some of, the, some of the things that we are looking at. We believe that women needs to be catered for from an inclusive perspective. They need to insure, they need to save, they need to invest, they need to borrow. Um, to become uh, economic agents as well. And, and if they are not included, if they do not have access, um, it, it will not help us. And therefore it's important from a financial sector strategy perspective and also from a perspective of um, strategy from a NAMFISA perspective as supervisors that they are included um, and that they have access to financial services. Um, yeah, thank you. 
No, that, that's, uh, thank you very much for that. And I recognize that supervisors uh, in developing countries have a very special challenge, uh, Erna, not only your task with looking after the stability of the financial system, you also oftentimes have a development mandate. And, uh, you know, I'm uh, very interested to hear what you said about Nemfisa on wheels. I know that you actually have a very effective organization. So just putting you guys on wheels will really compound the effectiveness uh, in terms of what you're doing. And in terms of the disaggregated data and the work that we've done on uh, Gender Aware Toolkit, thanks for um, recognizing it. And we, we stand ready to help. Um, and I, I believe that you have attended some workshops on that. So you already know something about it. So, you know, feel free to uh, contact us on us. Thanks again. Let's move to uh, Anita. Anita, you have a very interesting vantage point. You actually sit on uh, the UN. Uh, so you have a bigger picture on these issues. Uh, we heard from one of the smallest jurisdictions and one of the top, uh, you know, like largest jurisdictions in terms of population. So from your vantage point, how do you see emerging market policymakers addressing the challenges of financial inclusion for women? And are there any success stories or lessons learned to guide others uh, who might have fallen behind? Thank you. Well, thank you very much for that question, Babak. And let me just say what an honor it is for me to be on this panel with Her Excellency, uh, Minister Irani, and with my newly found friend, Erna, whom I met uh, yesterday. So great to be on this panel with two very distinguished women. Um, you know, the question you ask is a really interesting one, Babak, because I do think we are at a point in the world where there are some lessons that can be shared from positive experiences and that countries who are not as far along uh, with examples as we heard from both India and Namibia can learn from uh, you know, these examples. So I actually think the India example that the Honorable Minister provided is a very uh, good example because in just a decade, uh, you know, the gap in financial ownership has been addressed and transformed. So if you look at the data, the Findex data, which the World Bank puts out, shows that in 2011, only 26% of women in India had an account. And then you fast forward to 2021, and 78% of both men and women now have accounts. So that's a huge transformation in a decade. And it is something that should give policymakers all over the world um, reason to pause and look deeply at this example and say, what were the characteristics of the particular public policy interventions that made this possible? And uh, to understand that what was behind the success is not just the widespread adoption of particular financial products and services, but understanding that you cannot solve for these kinds of issues without addressing the infrastructure that is needed for this to be successful. In this case, um, you know, verifiable identity and national identity systems, which was identified as one of the main reasons why adults remained excluded from financial services because nobody could find them. Nobody knew who they were. They didn't have national IDs. So when India invested in that national ID system, which it did with actually with pretty remarkable speed, given the size of the population, that had domino effects on a lot of issues and provided access to ordinary citizens for a lot of things, including financial services. So that's one lesson. The second lesson is that you do actually have to look at the actual financial products and services. We've heard before in this forum of countries where there are products based on a recognition of cultural specificities, social norms, and a recognition that in many cultures and in many countries, it's very difficult for women to leave the house. And in fact, Erna, you had an interesting example when we talked briefly yesterday about, uh, I think it was a grandmother who would not be able to leave the house. And so when you think of the social barriers that prevent women uh, from leaving the house, 
you know, the design of products changes once you put that gender lens on, because it's no longer about, is this easy to use? But it is about where will the woman use this? Is she going to walk physically to a physical branch? Or should we be thinking about a product that you can do in the ease of your home? And so the design of the products is actually quite crucial as well. And so I would say the second lesson learned is that products have to look at culture, products have to look at social systems, products have to look at social norms, and products have to work with them and not be agnostic about the social cultural environment because designing products that where you simply cut and paste from say Denmark uh, is not gonna work in uh, Namibia or in India or you know, in many other uh, developing countries. So cultural specificity is very important. I think the third lesson is um, something related to gender mainstreaming. And I think I will, you know, I would refer back here to what uh, Minister Irani said about, you know, this is something that has to be everybody's business. Gender equality is not just for the gender ministry, it is a platform and an agenda that has to be widely owned. Another way of saying this is that we have to bridge the gap between the gender expertise and the finance expertise, which exists across ministries, banking, investor communities, civil society organizations. So, um, you know, I think thinking that gender equality and financial inclusion issues will be addressed only through the efforts of a gender ministry, no matter in which country, is really leaving a lot of value on the table and, uh, and not sufficiently leveraging the capacities, the skills, and the commitment of other ministries towards that gender equality agenda. Because as we have just heard, to achieve gender equality, you need investments, not just in the financial services infrastructure, but in all other infrastructures, including health, including sanitation, et cetera, which create the right enabling environment for women to go out and exercise agency and voice. Um, so, you know, uh, to give you one country, other country example, UN Women is working in Morocco with the government there uh, and there with the ministry, both of gender, but also the ministry of finance on financing the gender equality agenda and making sure that the ministry of finance in its budget allocations, the ministry of education, for instance, in its budget allocations is thinking about gender equality. Now in Morocco, Morocco is 148 out of 156 countries in the World Economics Forum's Gender Gap Index for economic participation and opportunity. But it is trying to address this. And last year we saw uh, Bank Centrale Populaire issue a pioneer gender bond for women's access to microcredit after the Capital Market Authority in Morocco adopted national gender bond guidelines. So this was the first gender bond on the African continent, raising about 15 million pounds uh, through a private placement and presumably the first use of the national gender bond guidelines in the world, but of course not a public issuance. So, um, you know, this is another example of how you need everyone to be involved in this agenda. So I would say that's another very important lesson learned that this cannot just be the job of those who work on gender. Well, Anita, thanks for sharing these very important lessons. Uh, and uh, it's absolutely correct that one size does not fit all. And uh, you're talking about the design of products and it really brings us back to a broader question around financial inclusion and really its relationship to financial stability because these are two sides of the same coin as well to, to look into. And the other issue that I take away is a series of, uh, I guess I, I could call them unconscious biases, right? It's just it's one thing to want to do the right thing is quite another to be aware that there's a legacy of products out there that do not necessarily fit the agenda of what we're trying to accomplish here. And then one final, I guess, a plug for Canada, as you know, 
uh, Canada's international development assistance is actually called feminist international development assistance. So it's actually, it is very focused on this. So we're now going to the, thanks for that. We're going to the second round. The first round, we talked about approaches to women, economic empowerment and financial inclusion. Now we're talking about technology as an enabler for digital divide and financial inclusion. Also, we'd like to remind our audience that we do have a Q&A portion. So please uh, list your questions. Don't be the last one to list uh, because uh, you know time will run very fast. Minister, I'd like to turn the attention back to you. How is digital transformation in, in India, and I've heard terms such as digital, disha, and mudra, are enabling women's financial inclusion? Thank you. I think, Babak, um, in the beginning, when in my comments, I had spoken about how mudra uh, was preceded by the Jandhan Yojana, which means the Prime Minister's insistence that those who have been still unbanked receive the banking uh, sector support to first open the account, then ensure that they have access to credit. But in the journey between opening an account and getting access to credit, there is a lot of fiscal literacy and management skills that an individual who seeks to indulge in enterprise manages to gather. Now, there are three components of government where those skill sets are given digitally, also skill sets which are transferred physically in a, a brick and mortar circumstance. The Prime Minister's insistence, again, to ensure that we have a digital literacy program called PM Disha, ensured that close to 30 million women across the rural landscape of India became digitally literate. Additionally, in all the skills programs that the government had envisaged and implemented, we in India never had a ministry particularly dedicated to skill. The Prime Minister first ensured that such a ministry was particularly and separately established. And of all the numbers of skill sets given out, we've seen that 50% of the beneficiaries in this rollout has been women in our country. Now, these are not soft skills like spoken English. Uh, we also have women now getting an opportunity to work in underground mines. So we have on one uh, aspect of education, more and more technological skills available through academic institutions. Institutions like the Indian Institute of Technology have proactively ensured that we have more rollouts of programs for women, but also ensured that in our skill sector, from issues like management and accounting systems to uh, machine-based or tool-based learnings, they've all been implemented specifically to also look at targeting female beneficiaries. Now, when you talk about uh, the fiscal health uh, of uh, a female citizen, we have ensured in this government under the prime minister's leadership that gender budgeting is now finding more and more space. As Anita rightfully said, gender cannot be one ministry's or minister's agenda. It has to be a whole of government approach and it has to be a national agenda. And that is why today, if we have a gender spend, let's say in the Ministry of Road Transport, we ensure that that budget entails uh, infrastructure to ensure secure transportation needs of women, to ensure issues like CCTV cameras in dark areas, specifically in urban and rural setups. So all those schemes, in fact, a scheme called Nirbhaya, where we have an amalgam of close to 20 ministries of the government of India who proffer various projects across ministries, which uh, oscillate between setting up women's help desk at police stations onwards to creating fast track courts that help expedite the judicial needs of women and setting up a one-stop crisis center for women across all districts of the country. This entails that when, like Anita said, you have to facilitate an environment so that female enterprise can prosper. And for that, from an issue of access to credit, onwards to building of infrastructure, onwards to ensuring that the workplace of women is secured is an issue that the government as a whole works at. Anita rightfully said that in a decade, in fact, I would like to correct it, it's less than a decade. We managed to do that in eight years. 
And Babak, if I take you back pre-2014, a small issue like an emergency response service system was not available in every state in our country. For the first time, the government has rolled out in every state in our country, in every major city, an emergency response service system particularly dedicated to women. And in these eight years, we have managed to service 200 million calls for support for women. So when you speak about how big our numbers are, uh, I think it's a reflection of how big our administrative reach is now to ensure no woman is left behind, which includes during the pandemic when everything was shut down, our helplines and support systems to help uh, women from issues of violence onwards to transportation, they were functional 24-7. And I think that when you enable women, even from a perspective of work from home, when you enable women to receive not only technological literacy, but also you help women in issues like the farm sector. For years on end, we have spoken about women in the unorganized labor systems in my country. And one of the reasons why people want to migrate from the unorganized labor systems to an organized labor setup is access to insurance. Now, the Prime Minister started a program called the Pradhan Mantri Suraksha Bhima Yojana, which entails that you pay one rupee. It is uh, less expensive than the cup of coffee you must have begun your day with. Can you imagine getting a life insurance policy from the government of India for less than half a dollar or a year's premium? Now, those are the segments that has been rolled out proactively, particularly targeted at women. Our maternity leave now mandated legally is 26 weeks. The Prime Minister also ensured women who look at termination of pregnancy, especially in difficult circumstances, that is a, a legislation that was pending in India for five decades. The something legislatively that was pending for five decades now has been brought up to speed up to 24 weeks. Now it is legally mandated. Now we are talking about issues which many a countries would be too afraid to legislatively touch, would be too afraid to in fact debate. It would divide a society and you have seen so in your neighborhood. But in India, not one man rose up against such a legislative uh, reform by the prime minister. Why? Because as Anita said, you see a man leading from the front on the women's agenda from a reform perspective. So the fact that we've managed to do not only from an infrastructural fiscal needs, we have looked at the ease of living for women. And we have accepted societally. The challenges will be a plenty when demographies change, when populations grow in size. But what the Indian citizen is assured of is a government that is receptive and responsive and responsible. Thank you, so Minister. Let me just, let me just take one more minute of your time. Sure. Let's look at the vaccination program in India, especially for COVID. To deliver Baba 2 billion vaccine doses without a hitch and riding it on technology from day one, none of our doctors were giving out permission slips or vaccination slips. We had a very robust digital system. And why I say this from a female perspective, one of the biggest negative uh, presumptions about women in technologies that when it comes to access to, let's say, healthcare needs in emergency systems, you do not have women who, who respond well to a digital system. The fact that women in my country could use an app, a mobile-based app, to know exactly where they can get themselves vaccinated, to maintain their digital vaccination certificate, and not take one or two doses, but also take an additional booster dose. That shows you the digital recall value of a government program, especially with women, and especially in the rural landscape, where people presume that literacy levels will be so low that women will not adapt to technology fast enough. So one of the things that the pandemic has shown the world is the Indian innate capacity to adopt technology with alacrity and to engage with government very productively. 
Thank you, Minister. And uh, it was you know, very appropriate you ended on the pandemic because uh, it was quite staggering what was accomplished in India. And the numbers that you are talking about, again, are uh, beyond uh, you know our imaginations. Uh, uh, quite an achievement. And it looks like what you're talking about in terms of uh, gender implementation of issues is really cross-cutting across the various government uh, agencies. And you have a fierce urgency of now. Minister, if you keep doing the way you're working, you're going to put yourself out of business soon, right? Because everything's going to become mainstream. So maybe maybe that is your ultimate goal, but and, and that <laughs> so would not be so bad thing. <laughs> it's not my doing. I get to take the credit for it uh, in front of the Toronto Center. It's a man working back. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, thank you for that. Uh, Erna, let's turn, turn back to you. Um, this year, NAMFISA launched the first ever FinTech Square platform in the non-bank financial institution sector. This was to drive financial inclusion and innovation and help mitigate some of the risks emerging from the financial services industry. Would you please elaborate a bit on this platform and the expected outcome? And, and you know, related to that, how do you think this will contribute to financial inclusion uh, and supervision? Thank you. Thank you so much, Babak, and thank you to the Honourable Minister and Anita for um, quite thoughtful um, stories there relating on, on this on this panel. That's, that's impressive stuff. Babak, uh, we believe in Namibia, and, and I believe pretty much in the world, that access and inclusion cannot be fully achieved without technology, without the help of digitalization and technology. And so we have, um, in the beginning of last year, embarked on um, innovation as a key theme for our strategy at, at NAMFISA. And, and you'd hear that my, my stories are aligned in terms of inclusion and access, because that's important for us as a developing economy. And because we have chosen innovation as a, a strategic theme, we have sort of gone on and, and, and looked at how do, we, how do we make it work for Namibia? How do we ensure that we invite those innovators that are in the market and entities that are trying to come up with new business models to ensure their sustainability to come to the market. And for us to suss out sort of the, 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 the work on the ground, we have therefore launched our very first FinTech, um, FinTech um, initiative, a FinTech platform that we've rolled out. And we have themed it um, as the regulator, where the regulator meets the innovator. And um, this platform has literally uh, been embraced by by the entities and by the public at large um, as as one of the 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 key things that would help um, improve inclusion numbers, improve access access numbers. And so, at the back end of the fintech um, platform and initiative, we have what we call the regulatory sandbox. And this sandbox is really just a safe space where entities and innovators with business models that they believe are feasible, business models that they believe are sustainable, can sort of come and test these models in a safe environment at the um, from the regulator side um, and the supervisor side. So they tested um, with real clients, with real consumers, to ensure that once a business model succeeds in the same safe environment, it can sort of be rolled out to um, the public at large. And so, um, this process has started already. Uh, we have had keen interest from the players in the industry, and we've also had interest from from public asking when what would be rolled out, you know. And 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 this is important for access. This is important for inclusion because we have, as I've said earlier on in in the first round, I've sort of mentioned how large our country is and where people are sitting. Anita has quite rightly spoken about traditional and cultural roles. And, 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 and I have an example of my stepmother, for example, that sits in a village and, and whereas nobody is forcing her not to leave the village, her place is home. That's where she operates from. And, and unless technology gets to her, it's difficult for her to get out and, and have access and, and be included in, in terms of financial services. Now, now that's something that's, that's very important for us. And I remember years ago when, when I was in the central banking space, we have literally taught the entire Namibia and we looked at viability of commercial banking branches in Namibia to see where do we put the branches so that it's closest enough to the inhabitants of this country. Now, technology has changed that from a commercial banking perspective. 
and we are trying to roll that out in terms of the non-banking services, your insurance services, um, your micro-lending and, and, and loans access for borrowing um, so that women can also have access to that borrowing and be included so that they can have technological uh, basic projects that can keep them that can keep them going sort of so um that is that is sort of what we are trying to do under the fintech um and it's something that we will do in cohorts so the first cohort would come and they will be accommodated under the regulatory sandbox they'll have um, a maximum of two years to test their models they'll roll it out to the market and ensure that there's access and there's inclusion and then we'll invite the next cohort and we'll see what new business ideas and models will, will be brought to the market through that. So, so I believe from, from an innovative uh, innovation perspective and theme, um, from, from a regulator, uh, regulator's point of view, that's, that's important. That's important. And, and that's sort of how our first FinTech Day went. I mean, we had more than 30 people that came to the market to the FinTech Day and that represented their ideas and models to the regulator quite Impressive stuff. Um, if if that is obviously taken the full the full length into fruition. Thank you. Thank you, Erna. It's evident that it's been a very very busy challenge, and uh, your personal story also highlights the intricacy of it. I mean, we uh, in the financial supervision finance business sometimes we don't really think about people so it's really refreshing when we talk about financial inclusion that it's all about people, right? So thank you for sharing. Uh, the work of your institutions and others, uh, you know, related matters to that. Anita, uh, let me ask you the last structured question. Then we're going to go to the Q&A section. Already see a lot number of questions there. Anita, in one of your speeches, you said, if we don't act urgently, we will not see gender equality for another 136 years. Wow, that's pretty precise. In your view, what are the priorities we need to address persistently and urgently to promote gender equality and digital financial inclusion? I'm kind of curious about 136. Anyway, maybe you can elaborate. Thank you. Yeah, I mean, <clears throat> thank you very much, Babak. Look, I think the numbers, uh, whether it's 136 or 286, which is another recent estimate on how many years it will take to get rid of all discriminatory laws in the world that discriminate against women, whatever that number is at one level, it doesn't matter because all these numbers are much greater than our lifetimes. And uh, the bottom line message from all of these numbers and this data is that it is going to take an incredibly long line, long time before we achieve gender equality in the world. Now, I do want to say that these numbers, whether it's 136 or 286 are global numbers. And obviously there's huge variability between countries. But it is difficult nowadays not to wake up and say, gosh, what new ways have some countries found to oppress women? You know, when you look at what's happening in Afghanistan and with the Taliban who have consistently gone back on the promises they made about inclusion of women. And then you see the latest thing being women can no longer go to gyms. Women can no longer go to parks. You know, you have to conclude that some people spend their time thinking about, aha, what new way can I oppress women with today? And so this is happening in many different parts of the world. And that is why the pathway to gender equality, if you look at some of these developments is very rocky. So what needs to change in order for this to really um, become different? First and foremost, this has to be, this has to be a public policy government priority. There has to be political will to push the gender equality agenda, especially today with the poly crises of inflation, energy costs, food costs rising. Policymakers have a lot to think about. It is very easy for cabinets to focus just on the economics and to forget that to achieve certain economic outcomes, to improve recovery after COVID, to really build a strong, just, and climate-friendly society that you actually need to engage women. So unless it is a something that the head of government is willing to take on and to speak about, things aren't going to change. So you do need male leaders who stand up and speak about issues like menstruation, 
uh, and who speak about women's needs for sanitary pads. I think this example needs to be replicated in many other parts of the world so that you remove the stigma of some of the issues that always get in the way of girls and women's empowerment. So I think there is a compelling example uh, of how you can center women in uh, overall development policy. So that's one. The second I think is um, it is really important uh, and we've spoken about this before today in the panel, Minister Irani had a very compelling example from India. You can only do this if uh, it, gender is everybody's business. So I think that is the other shift that needs to happen because in too many countries, we have seen this over and over again, women's empowerment and gender equality becomes the work of the gender equality minister alone who I have to say in many countries is often not very empowered, often has a very small budget and often does not have a voice at the table. In countries where that is not the case, you see a different approach and you see different outcomes. And the gender minister can then be supported by all other ministers who are also taking on the gender equality agenda. So that is true gender mainstreaming and that is essential. The third thing is, and Minister Irani again had a very good example of this, but there are many examples in other parts of the world as well. In India, in Zambia, in Rwanda, gender responsive budgeting is critical because you can talk about gender equality, but then where are the resources? So you have to walk the talk and the money has to follow the rhetoric. So in, countries where there is gender responsive budgeting and this walking of the talk is happening, you do see better outcomes in terms of the impact on gender equality and women's empowerment. And then I would say, so in addition to the first three that I mentioned, one, political will and political leadership at the highest level on gender equality. Number two, um, making sure that this is mainstreamed and not just the job of the gender minister. And number three, gender responsive budgeting. These are three very vital tools for pushing women's empowerment. The fourth has to be the soft issue of addressing systemic cultural bias and social norms, gender stereotypes, people's vision of what is the right role for a woman. And, you know, um, it's interesting to me when I look around the world and I look at the financial sector, for instance, right? Um, it, is, it was very interesting to me that only a few years ago, we had the first female CEO on Wall Street. And I said at the time that Jane Fraser uh, became CEO of Citibank on Wall Street here in New York. I said, you know, it's very interesting to me. I've been to a number of countries, including I will say India, Kazakhstan, to mention another one, where the heads of all the banks are women. So, you know, I think the cultural bias about who can run a bank, who is actually okay to be a leader in the financial sector is just one example of the gender stereotypes that we have. UN Women has a program called the Unstereotype Alliance, where we work with the marketing um, industry to make sure that uh, we are not perpetuating gender stereotypes and that in fact, we are working actively to rid the world of biases about what can a woman do versus what can a man do. You know, occupational segregation has been a problem for a long time. There've been a lot of sectors that have historically been kind of off bounds for women that is changing, but the occupational segregation, for example, in the STEM industry, you know, is a long standing um, bias and that needs to change. And that is changing slowly in many parts of the world. For example, in the Arab states, there are today more women studying STEM and graduating with STEM degrees than men. So you are beginning to see this change, but unless we address this cultural bias and stereotypes about women, 
uh, I don't think we can achieve gender equality. Thank, thank you very you. much. Yeah, thank you. It's actually a very good, uh, you know, uh, the way you put the, these four issues down is critical. And I'd say systemic cultural biases, if one was going to take the Oscars on these, that would be that in terms of if you get, get that, because it comes down to that whole governance issue. Let's go to the Q&A portion. We don't have a lot of time. I'm conscious of the minister's time, but I do want to get a couple of questions in. Minister, we have a question from our courageous anonymous attendee. Uh, interesting point, actually. I would like to pay tribute to the many women who have worked tirelessly over decades for changes in India. Listening to the panelists, gender equality is the key to true emancipation of women. What is being done to change the hearts and minds of men around the world? I find that actually a very important point because here you are a minister of the government, uh, prime minister's dedicated, everything is being done by fiat. I mean, this is your uh, day in day out preoccupation. But at the end of the day, what, um, how enduring are these changes if the hearts and minds of the men are not uh, you know, coming in tandem? And what is your view on this? You've been a politician since 2011. You had to go knock on doors and get elected. How do you, how do you, how, what, what, are you what is your reflection on this point? Thank you. I've been an elected politician for uh, over a decade, but I've also been an organizational politician over two decades. Uh, I can only say this, one of the greatest uh, indications of how men respond when there is a legislative effort to bring about a societal change and an administrative reform. Uh, the issue of medical termination of pregnancy uh, at 24 weeks. Now, like I said, if you want uh, an indication of the maturity of the male vote bank, and how did they respond to changes vis-a-vis -vis women in India? I think the fact that there was not a single political establishment in the country that did not support this agenda of the prime minister speaks volumes about the societal change that we are seeing. I do not here proclaim that issues of violence uh, have 100% been attended to by any nation in the world, because these are issues that uh, emanate from many uh, psychological uh, reasons. These are issues that emanate from many uh, challenges within our family systems. And this uh, is an issue which has a global nature. So when you talk about how do you change the minds and hearts of men, well, uh, legislating a billion plus people is comparatively easier. But when you uh, see a man lead from the front, uh, not administrative change, but societal change. And why do I say this? Apart from the medical termination of pregnancy uh, law, the fact that the first prime minister ever to speak from the ramparts of the Red Fort on Independence Day about affordability of menstrual hygiene products. Now that is something which was a political and a societal abomination. Nobody could ever imagine a male politician standing on Independence Day and talking about affording sanitary napkins for women. Now, that is another indication of the tectonic shift. And this is a prime minister who's 72 years in age. So the other uh, prejudice that people may have, that men at a particular age may not be open enough to support reform or the female agenda, again is belied by this very Indian story that I've shared with you. The other aspect is when systems become more responsive to the needs of women, you see more and more men come to an understanding that a woman's space with regards to her dignity, a woman's space with regards to her life, uh, uh, right to live uh, with respectable means and access uh, to, uh, to resources is not a space that is created out of force. It is a space that is created out of partnerships. And that is why when Anita says that if the gender agenda was just limited to my ministry, then it would not be a national agenda. The fact that the prime minister leads the gender agenda, the fact that in a handover of the G20 presidency, the prime minister says that apart from the economic agenda, we need to ensure that the female agenda is at the forefront of all our considerations. 
Now that is a change that we've been hoping for for a very long time. So I think that if you want to particularly look at the hearts and minds of men, we need to begin from educating the young boys we have in our homes. So Erna, this uh, evening in India, I heard your story and your efforts. But I think that apart from the fact that we have a male moderator, if we had a male panelist as well, possibly that would bring about the little change uh, that we are hoping to see on a global scale. So there are many unconscious bias that irrespective of our education or legislative upliftment, we become ourselves party to. Excellent, excellent uh, response there. Thank you for that. Uh, there's a there's a comment here from uh, Sarah talks about if Western countries have so many challenges in their own financial institution, how is it possible for other countries to hold their financial actors accountable in terms of gender equality? And I point back to the answer that Anita gave that actually developing countries might be a lesson, might be a source of inspiration for holding financial institutions accountable in the uh, developed world. Let me switch gear and ask a question of Erna. Erna, looking at the broader geopolitical uncertainties, uh, food security is an issue, and it's a question here as well. And you have uh, you know, your own agricultural sector and uh, presumably have index insurance, parameter insurance. What can supervisors and regulators do to help with the, uh, you know, addressing the food security issues that are taking place right now. Um, do you have any broad observations on that? Thank you. And, and of course, I mean, the angle is for women and financial inclusion, because I mean, that's a really key driver here. Thank you. Thank, thank you, Babak. Um, that's, a, that's a very apt question. Um, and I must thank the minister for those, for those responses. It was, it was put on. I think food security um, for, for Namibia and, and I suppose for our neighboring countries is, is exactly the, the same thing. And that has been exacerbated by obviously the pandemic, but also the war in, in, in Russia and Ukraine. Now, from a Namibian perspective, we import about 70% of, of what we consume in Namibia from South Africa. And South Africa imports it from, from somewhere else, um, I, I suppose. So food security is a, is a, is a is a key um, challenge for us as Namibians. We are living in a country that is semi-arid um, and with very scarce rain um, that, 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 that we see, uh, sparse rainfalls um, that, that we see. So the, our country is largely desert. Um, it's very difficult to grow um, um, crops in, in Namibia or, or, or livestock. I myself am a livestock, livestock farmer. So, so I, when I spoke about these things, I, I, I know what we then go through. But I must say that over the recent past, for example, the Agricultural Bank of Namibia has, has introduced a program where they focus on women and food sustainability. And so they advance loans to women um, that owns a piece of land or that are on resettlement farms um, in and around the country to sort of um, do work around food, food production, whether it's crop or whether it's um, livestock. So, so those are some of the some of the things that 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 we do um, a, as a country, and and I believe um, in the rest of of the African region. Um, part of the region, or the larger part of the region, is is actually lucky in the sense that they are in 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 good rainfall areas. So, so they benefit from the rainfall. Namibia has in the last year worked on index insurance, agricultural index insurance, um, together with the World Bank, and where for example, at a very advanced stage um, of getting that implemented uh, together with our policymakers, the Ministry of Finance, and, and so on. So the regulator has sort of initiated that process. We have engaged technical assistance from the World Bank, and we have taken the full scope of getting agricultural in index insurance up, up and running together with our local uh, businesses and entities. But if you look at further across um, um, Africa, Agricultural index insurance has been in, in Zambia, also through the assistance of the World Bank. It has been in uh, Kenya for a much longer period um, and, and very fancy actually in, in Kenya in terms of how they do the indexing and how they do the payments in terms of insurance. So food security is a key thing for us. It's a key challenge. And, and I believe uh, from a, a Africa continent perspective, it's something that, that everybody is tackling together to ensure that 
we grow more um, for local consumption so that we, we don't uh, rely on, on imports only. Fantastic. And uh, no, thank you very much for that. And uh, uh, to you and min the minister and Anita, one of the uh, you know big uh, virtues of a Toronto Centre program is we start on time and we never go over time. I know how busy everybody is, including the minister. So I'm going to try to bring this to close with a few comments. First, big apology to everyone who asked questions whose questions did not get answered. I am leaving a bunch of questions on the table. But rest assured that you know none, none of these are going to be forgotten. Just a couple of points there. We see questions on uh, gender bonds, uh, green bonds. Uh, you know, obviously we're going to be working on those. Um, this food security question that I posed to Erna is a very important growing issue. It might be sort of uh, stimulated very much by the uh, the war that's taking place today. But even in the absence of the war, it is one of those issues that climate change will drive it. So there's a nexus here for climate change, uh, gender equality, financial inclusion. So this food security is a very big issue to come and we are working on that as well. And because we had the honor of hosting the minister, just a couple of quick points. Uh, I believe India's G20 presidency has a very interesting theme. Vasudeva Kutumbam Kam, I'm sorry about the pronunciation. It comes to one earth, one family, one future is drawn from the ancient Sanskrit text of Maha Upanishad. Essentially, the theme affirms the value of all life, human, animal, plant, and microorganisms, and their in interconnectedness on the planet Earth and in the wider universe. So really, what else is left as we were thinking about this? And in the context of today's conversation, I found this was a very stimulating panel. Our friend Betty uh, Wilkinson is asking whether this will be made available. Yes, so this will be made available, this uh, video, and uh, please widely distribute it to your friends. And I just like to close the session by saying namaste and thanks everybody and uh, thanks again. And we hope to see our panelists at future programs and with our audience, uh, obviously we'll uh, uh, endeavor to bring you interesting programs. Thanks again, everyone, bye-bye. Thank you.